Welcome to Employee of the Month. Here's your host, Katie Lazarus. Hi, welcome back to Employee of the Month show. On this episode, I sat down with James Brawley, who is the author most recently of Life in a Marital Institution about his marriage. You've heard him on The Moth frequently. He's also been on This American Life. And James has done an incredible job of figuring out how to tell real life stories in a way that feels as if you're listening to fiction, but they're all real and make a living off doing so. So it was a really important, I think, interview to sit down and talk with him about how he does this and to realize both how vulnerable and difficult it can be uh, to be so honest and how important it is to be a really good storyteller because no matter what the material, it's all in how you spin it. So without further ado, here's my interview with James. I'm thrilled to have on Employee of the Month show, James Brawley, who is the author of Life in a Marital Institution, which you must run, not walk, to get, even though you can also just run, not walk, to your computer and get it on Audible. I'm really thrilled to have on the phenomenal, phenomenal monologist or monologist? Uh, you know, I've always struggled with that, and so I go the third way. Storyteller, Story, writer, like story performer. You know, yeah. storyteller. What's it like after being published many times in the New York Times, winning several um, Moth Grand Slams to finally win the Employee of the Month Award? Uh, it's awesome. I did <laughs> not grow up thinking that I'd be here because there was no such thing as the Employee of the Month. But as I matured and uh, discovered what's valuable in the world, I thought one day. And here it is. All right, so let's get into it because we, I want to hear you know, how you started out and everything, but we may go on some circuitous, circuitous routes because... I'm just so obsessed with your book, and I want to talk about marriage. Even though that's not necessarily career focus, I really want to talk about how writing about your marriage does it mess it up? Being so open, being so nakedly open. Well, it, that's an interesting question. I started out by writing to save it. Like, why am I yeah. here? Why does this keep happening to me? I couldn't understand why it kept happening to me. So I thought I'd write stories and go down to the moth and figure it out. And put it, I put a show together and stole emails of everybody I could think of stealing who knew more about this form than I did, monologists. Uh, <laughs> one of them was a Tony Award winning director, Gregory Mosier. He used to run Lincoln Center. And he comes down to my show and he says, awesome, but you're gonna have to change everything. Uh, Meaning you're gonna have to be more honest? Exactly. He said, the reason you get to tell your story is because we're afraid to tell ours. And if you can't really go there, you can't do this work. I love that. Because, I mean, this is why I want to talk about it. Because I, the greatest writers, on a certain level, either don't give a shit, or they just create this compartmentalization. And I'm just wondering for you, you know, what goes on. Because you clearly do give a shit. You obviously love your wife, for example, and your kids. But then in order to do exactly what you just said, you have to sort of not give a shit or compartmentalize, right? Yeah, well, and it became particularly challenging when I started writing the book because you, you don't, re I was speaking with somebody else who'd done a lot of uh, storytelling downtown and then his kids got older and he was saying, you know, shit, I had no idea they were gonna get older. <laughs> <laughs> read this, whereas, okay, so whereas with the stories, you're like, okay, I'm done that night, I've told this at the mall. Yeah, it's in a room in and front it of thousands of people. And even when it's on the radio, it didn't feel as, as somehow um, final. No, because it's kind of, it's gone out into the ether. So even though it's available on the internet and you can download it, it doesn't feel real. But when you got a kid, I had actually had a dream last night of my two kids with a buddy of theirs who has also gone through a traumatic relationship situation with his parents. And they were talking about, they were visiting my website together. Oh, that was a dream, <laughs> <All right, now laughs> which is to say a nightmare. How old are your two boys? Uh, 14 and 11. Okay, so they are of the age where they clearly know what you do. Oh, yes. Yes, they know what I do. They see the stacks of books on my uh, desk. They are Facebook friends. I've had to Facebook friend them because I want to perform surveillance on them, just as they may or may not want to perform surveillance on me. So, but they self-limit. They don't want to, as far as I can tell, they don't want to go there. They don't want to know yet. Yeah. But like, you know, you've talked about like, you have this great story about your son's pink bike and how he really wanted to get this pink bike um, and how you would probably rather not have a son with a pink bike, but you're going to go along with it because your father 
who's totally different than you didn't. I, I, don't, I would rather yeah, yeah. you tell the I story. I love you, honey. If you're downloading this one day, <laughs> totally love you. Um, I, uh, yeah, well, initially, I didn't want to go with a pink. He asked me for a pink bike, and I don't want to give him a pink bike. And I finally kind of decode why I don't want to give him a pink bike. Because, not, and not for the obvious reasons that pink is for girls, etc., but because I had been given a red bike. And just, you know, and I wanted to make a mini-me. That's a big part of what happens with the first kid mini me him, juniorng him, stamping him, and you realize, oh my God, which is why people want to, you know, fathers want to give their sons their name, yes. all that stuff, and to let him actually be is, uh, it's a struggle. As a second child, my father, I mean, he'll talk candidly about how he saw my older brother as an extension of him, and he was so hard on him and, and you know, would really beat him up mentally and physically to be, you know, even better. Toughen be even him stronger. up, yes. him up, yeah. And he, that he couldn't, uh, draw the line. I mean, he can now as an adult, but he couldn't when we were young. And I was jealous and, and was confused. Why don't I get... Mini me. Yeah, and why don't I get this kind of attention? I mean, no one really cared whether I, whatever I did. Um, and it's such an interesting thing. And of course, as an adult, you can see the, the pros and cons of this. <laughs> well, I, I reached a conclusion years ago after my second son, who's two years, eight months younger, came to be about two or three years old, and I realized how differently I was treating him. Mm. And, it, and I thought the only chance that my first son has at mental health is if I can channel how I treat my second son into my relationship with my first son. And my first son, I need to lift him to the standard that I treat my, my second son, I need to lift him to the standard that I treat my, my first son. But see, this is particularly fascinating because it's both boys. So, you, I mean, they're both That's boys. That's right. So, so what happened, I mean, so just, can you describe, like, for the second son, you didn't have the same types of hopes and dreams? or you're Well, it's, it's like uh, I heard it described to me early when I was a parent that when you have the first son and you drop a spoon, it's, you know, waiter, can I have a new spoon? When you have the second son, you wipe it off. And when you have the third son, you stick that spoon in his mouth. You don't, you know, you're so precious when you're with the first son, and you become increasingly less precious and covetous of the genes as time goes on. It's this material fact. They become less precious. So in the case of the, the first son, what happened emotionally was I, yeah, I started to sort of see it as this emotional double helix, that it was this continent of joy I had never experienced before, did not know that it was even possible to have that kind of intensity of love and desire, you know, like I was willing to take a bullet for this kid and I would not even take one for myself. And you know, that's how much I love this kid. It also came with an equally powerful set of negative memories. And that is what it felt like to be his age and you got them both at the same time. And I think, you know, when you talk, uh, and I encourage people to go listen to the story about the pink bike, and you can get that online at The Moth, and I think you can even get it online on iTunes as well, and on your website, jamesbrawley.com. But what I liked about it is that talking, you, you do re reference all of this, that, that trying to channel these types of emotions more so towards the younger son in terms of the red bike and pink bike, how he wants a bike like his older brother. Yeah, well, that's something in different stories. Yes. And, and this okay. one is just contained between me and my dad. Okay. And trying to sort of balance these two poles, you know, having been I raised see. by a guy who's Eisenhower's bomber pilot, who is a hardcore, you know, decorated military war hero, yes. uh, who, and with a grandson who wants, you know, a party dress. Right. At, at two and a half. <laughs> not because, you know, not that there's anything wrong with it, but not necessarily because he likes other boys in party dresses. Just a lot of boys like that because they're hanging out with women all the time. <laughs> women, you mean young girls, right? I'm yeah, no, 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 I mean women. Like young children, male and female young children, when they're, you know, one, two, three, four years old, the preponderance of their days are spent with women, not with men. Okay, I see. And so you think that that's what propelled, because I would think they'd be so peer focused. They, but those, but their peers are also hanging. In other words, the teachers at uh, kindergarten and daycare and, uh, you know, mommy and me and all those people, like the whole world, at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, you're 2 years old, yeah. the adults around you are mostly female. And so you feel like in your son's case, he either idealized some teacher or your, or your wife or someone and was like, I want to be like her and therefore That's I right. This is what the people are doing. But most of, the, most of adult women aren't really into pink, are they? They have a lot more pink than men do. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and I can tell you that as a result of the scarcity of males, because I worked at home, I would go to the playground in the afternoon. Yeah. I would take my breaks at you know, 3 o'clock in the afternoon. I would take over for the kids. My wife would go and do her thing. And you were a rock star with the other moms or with the other kids? With the other kids, because okay. there's no males. Were you a rock star with the other moms as well? Um, I don't know, because one of the ways that you survive a long-term marriage mm -hmm. is you put yourself in amber. So that's the way I survived, at least. So I'd be on my own little bench with my pirate booty, 
and my other you know, hydroponic organic snacks and focused on my, my boys. And I had a whole little thing that I was trying to do with them you know, to make these two or three hours meaningful. Where, and actually, I started to see to the degree that I did notice what was going on, I did get some contempt. And even shutting off emotionally wouldn't have been enough, right? No, what would happen, well, you know, I'll give you an example. I go into the playground one day and I've got, I'd read some concept called optimal frustration. Okay. And optimal frustration, which, you know, we can imagine what that means in an adult. The, okay. the idea is that you frustrate them enough so that they grow to sort of reach, but that it's not so far away that they shut down. Yeah. So one okay. of the ways you do that with a young kid is you, when you take them to the sandbox, you don't put them in. You put him outside the sandbox so he has, to, he has to struggle to get in. That's part of the game. You How did you learn these things? Did you read books and things like that? Uh, a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. So there's a tiny bit of a book. You know, I had a full-time mother, wife, you know, who's, who was, oh, like, a, was like a graduate student. Mother or wife? Uh, well, psychologically mother, legally wife. You just have to Let's draw that, that distinction and make it clear. So she's, in, she's reading a lot. Okay. And uh, so, hey, let me tell you what I read today. And so she's coming up, uh, you know, she's telling me, it was, it was like being married to a, a you know, self-talking, you know, auditory NEA grant. Did she you feel like you were co-parenting? Uh, yeah. Uh, well, yes, to a large degree we were, maybe uncomfortably so, because I was working at home yeah. and, and I had more time than most fathers would have to focus on their kids, plus the fact that they're males, they're boys. Mm -hmm. So you're more, you feel like you know more, even though you're a guy and maybe you're an idiot emotionally, you feel like instinctively you understand a little bit more about what they need and what to do with them and so forth than you would if they were daughters. Like if I had daughters and I would walk around the neighborhood, I'd see you know, little girls walking by and I'm thinking, I have no idea what I would be doing with them. I wonder if it's really as different as you think. And I wonder if women really, I mean, I think you're both giving women too much credit and discrediting men too much because isn't that most men aren't in the position where they need to learn these things necessarily. Meaning that, you know, in a traditional home, if a man's working outside of the home, he doesn't necessarily need to learn, like, where do I put the child in the sandbox? But if he's in the same situation that a mother is, he does need to <laughs> figure those things out. Yeah, well, and I think he would be capable things. of. That's yeah, what I just mean. Yeah, there's certain practical like... things that you figure out, but it's more the, the like, who is steering the emotional ship of yes. the family? Because those are really different jobs. You okay. know, one is, I, I, you know, I think we need to move to California because I got a professorship or whatever the hell it is, and like, yes. here's the vision, and it's going to turn into this much money, and we're going to need to live in it. So, you know, that's like a guy thing, typically. And, the, you know, and what the woman typically might say is, you know, that's not going to make me happy. Or, you know, I don't really like that kind of weather. Or, you know, that Sun, may not, that sunshine may not, is terrible. That may yeah. not be good for you to hang out around those people. Somebody who actually incorporates emotional information mm. into the decision-making process. And your work is about your life. And then you're also working from home. So you're experiencing it simultaneously from being home. Doing lots and lots of research, yes. And also, I mean, part of what I, I was doing to, to try to balance that out, and I like to think of people like Charles Ives and T.S. Eliot, who were guys, artists who had fingers in the business community. One of them was a banker. The other was an insurance actuarial. Charles Ives, who was a composer, developed the actuarial tables, you know, insurance risk based on life expectancy. And so my thing was to write corporate uh, speeches and motivational speeches go into this fortune 500 world and deal with these guys that was your day job uh, I was freelance okay and so that was how I was funding the transition to uh, being a monologist storyteller whatever Wait, you want to call it so let, let me just give some history for listeners who, who may not be familiar with your work that you went to Columbia went to Columbia um, and then you started writing these speeches after that that's correct okay. yeah I went to work for a guy who I later came to call Hitler who wanted me to be his Goebbels, his chief propagandist, and actually asked me to study him. And that was kind of a freaky experience that when I shared with some of my fellow colleagues, got me fired the next day. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, using the think. techniques from Goebbels, I got rehired <laughs> and uh, because I had, you know, like $200 in the bank and I needed to get, you know, another thousand before I could get fired again. And then I did get fired again and then became a freelance. And so what I did with the freelance stuff was yeah, it's a feast or famine, super intense, four or six week, do absolutely nothing but solve problems with work. You achieve these Vulcan mind melds with chief executives who know everything except how to organize, write, and communicate. 
I don't know if they know everything. I think you're giving them No, too no, much about credit, their business. Oh, about their business, absolutely. I mean, these guys are, the, the way they get to that it. point is yeah. alpha males. I'm invulnerable. There's nothing I don't know. Follow yes. me, we'll take the hill. And then, yes. you know, everybody else get out of the room. You know, I have absolutely no idea how to organize my thoughts. Right. So you come well, to them in a vulnerable place. More often than not, I'm in shock by multimillionaires that I'll meet who can't string a sentence together. And I'm like, how were you able to raise, you know, millions of dollars in capital? How, how did you pitch that to someone who else who gave you all this money? But they cannot. They can't. It, it's fascinating, and it's gotten worse, and I think, to a large degree because of PowerPoint. Like, when I first started this, this uh, craft, we'll call it, people were coming out of a traditional educational framework where they had learned the Roman numeral outline technique. Yes. So, you know, one, two, three, A, B, C, et cetera. So they could actually fill a blank piece of paper with a structural view of what they wanted to say, and then we could talk about that and fill it in. Now, they don't have that. They're not taught to outline. So it's just these empty PowerPoint boxes, and there's no sequential logic and no time. The light bulbs are going off all the time. But I'm so envious because, like, this person, like, before they became famous or wealthy, they had to ask money, and they got money even when they had no street cred but they still couldn't speak English then. And now they don't need to because they've made a lot of money. Like what I'm always well, it <laughs> admiring runs. in some of these CEOs is like, they're a total idiot, but they're obviously much more brilliant than I am. Well, high, I call them the high achieving, emotionally arrested males. They're very, very highly developed, idiot savants almost in one area. And yeah. not unlike performing, one of the things I've discovered over the years of performing is that your success as a performer rises or falls to a large degree on confidence, yes. which is subtext, not what you're actually talking about, but how you're talking about it. And it's the same with a lot of business executives. That guy gets up there on you know, the, the dais and says, you know, this is what we should do. And if he can present it with confidence, his job is to be a leader and to make decisions. How does that manifest like in storytelling, for example? I can well, see in stand-up, I can certainly see in stand-up how there are certain people who succeed who are not necessarily that funny. They're just really confident in what they're saying and they've been able to craft an act and they're really good craftsmen. Yeah, and you're Craft buying, people, you're buying you know, years ago I was at, since uh, you probably know the name of this place, it's on 78th and Broadway, Stand Up New York maybe? Yeah, that was where like I first that, started, Stand Up. Right, which was in my neighborhood, just happened to wander down there that night and there are seven or ten comics on the bill and right. my feet are sticking to the floor and I'm looking at these guys and, you know, good, 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 funny, funny, funny. And then, ladies and gentlemen, we have actually a special guest. He's just come here. Please welcome Chris Rock. And Chris Rock gets up on the stage and says, you know, I'm going to be hosting the VH1 Awards next week and I wanted to try out some material. So he tries out this material. And a lot of it's not very funny, but he's Chris Rock. And so they're in heaven. And so he's presenting, he's like, I'm Chris Rock, and I'm gonna be on the VH1 Awards next week. So he's presenting, he's not ashamed of the fact that this material's not worked out. And the guy who precedes him, and the guy who follows him, way, way better material but they did not present it with the confidence that I, he did. And I've seen it. I mean, I've seen it with so many comedians. I know exactly what you're saying, that they're exuding this confidence on stage. And that, you would say, is the same with storytelling, Absolutely. Too. It's absolutely true. You know, you, you I, I liken it, when I first went on stage, because it's a terrifying thing, that moment, you know, the before to after moment. Why do I, because we all tell stories, we all talk, and the transition from being a normal person to telling a uh, story on stage is less clear than it is to being a comic, because you're not a comic in real life. But you are a storyteller in real life. So it's like, why do I get to go up there, and how am I gonna pull this off? And then it hit me. You know, I was a fifth grader holding a snake that I'd just gotten out of a river, and I ran into an apartment building and said, here, I'm totally excited about this. And half the people are reviled by the snake, and the other half are like, Oh, and then they may not like snakes, the other half of the people, yeah, but you they, lost buy the into, <laughs> they buy into my enthusiasm. And so what you're doing as a storyteller is the same thing. Like I can see something that, that you guys not necessarily see, but I'm going to sell you on my enthusiasm and my love of this thing that I need to tell you. So interesting too is like I definitely see you know like there are more men at the moth who win and there there is a little bit of a machismo in the male storytelling community and I was going to say the storytelling community in general but it does feel like such so much more level in terms of a playing field to get into as a woman than I would say the storytelling world yeah, versus the comedy world I really do think that I mean it's gotten so much better in comedy I can't even imagine entering now it's totally different than when I started where I was like not effable enough to perform at the comic strip 
you know, you had to deal with such oh, silly, petty stuff where you're in like. In case you didn't hear that at home, that is effable. <laughs> <laughs> How do you pronounce? Uh, let's see. That's three asterisks afterwards. Uh, well, you know. But you know what I mean, like petty crap where you're like, huh? I didn't know that like anyone wanted to sleep with either Jonathan Winters, who is hilarious, or Bill Cosby, or you know, what I mean, like. He I'll let you on stage if you promise not to sleep with <laughs> me. They said Jonathan Winters. Right. The, well. Part of what makes it a male world to me, because I, I took a stand-up comedy course years ago. I had no idea about this world. I just thought, you know, and there wasn't really a developed storytelling. And, and this was while you're writing these corporate speeches yes. during the day. Yeah, I thought I just got, I have to make a switch. And this was like 1998, something like that. And I didn't quite know where to go. And I didn't like uh, writing speeches. And that's how I'd made my life so far. And I didn't want to be a stand-up. And I thought, you know, I'm not going to, the, the way that I get stuff done is to do what I don't want to do. So I'm going to do it. And I signed up for the stand-up course and it culminates X weeks later. It's very funny, very interesting course. Uh, just a parenthetical note, I don't know whether you've ever done this exercise, whether you teach stand-up. I don't believe they, in teaching stand-up, but, but yeah. They, well, they do, what's your body language? Oh, fabulous. So you stand I'm gonna up take and, that back, I don't believe in teaching, teach You just me. stand up in front of people <laughs> and they write down their first impressions of you. And nobody's ever seen each other. And you write down your first impressions of each other. And that's where I first found out that I presented as gay. Is that right? <laughs> yes. Uh, they said, Upper West Side, married, corporate, large penis, gay. But that was nice that you got a large penis That That's what my instructor said. Be happy <laughs> you're coming your across hung. Uh, uh, <laughs> Tommy Koenig. I'm glad I think like Tommy Koenig. <laughs> yeah, yeah to Tommy Koenig was, he's like, be happy you're coming across hung, man. And, but half the class thinks you're gay. So I started taking, you know, started working out and transforming myself into But didn't that also teach it. you how futile these kinds of exercises are and that people will just say whatever? No, because I had not told them I was married. They knew all of these things about me, is my point. But anyway, the, the last meeting was at Caroline's and my feet stick to the floor. And that's when I decided that the aesthete in me could not envision a career with my feet sticking to the floor. So part of what led me out of that world. What do you mean by that? Your feet were sticking to the floor. You were beer, dried beer, and oh, you don't get that. That it was so seedy and you gross. Don't... Even at one of the nicest comedy clubs in the city. Yeah, it's awesome. <laughs> that place is awesome, but you you have to not care about that. Yeah. That has to, that seems like a ridiculous thing. A lot I... of people are like, oh my god, that's absurd. For me, like you go to the moth. Your feet don't stick to the floor at the moth. I the moth agree is more. an awesome place. It's not that it's refined and luxurious or whatever, but it's just. You know, it achieves a minimum level of civilization. Uh, no, no, stand-up is seedy. I was joking when you came in here. I was like, I'm not used to being treated with dignity. I mean, when you go into stand-up, it's a very undignified <laughs> world. Well, especially for the work that goes in it. Because the, you know, the, the work that work it takes that to be an awesome stand-up is, yes. I mean, it's major friggin' work. And winnowing it down. It's the same with storytelling. Oh, yeah. You winnow it down because you you're communicating in, in moments. You know, in seconds, seven perfect seconds, 15, 30, 60 perfect seconds. What went into a five or six minute story, the pink bike story, hundreds and hundreds of rehearsals and drafts. It's insane. So do you write it? Yeah, how does your process work? Like, do you write it out? What's your well, process? Well, it, it's changed over the years. Initially, I did it as, uh, just as an outline because the moth was just kind of raconteurs and people who cottoned to the form. Yeah. And then that started drawing performers and the craft that performers bring, actors. Actors work from scripts. I'm at the Grand Slam at the moth. I see one of the, my fellow competitors over by a, a wall sconce with this crib sheet in his palm and I walk over there and I see like four point pica type in his hand. I said, what are you doing? And he said, I, I'm Why memorizing my font? Yeah, I said, I'm <laughs> memorizing my story. Don't you do it? And I said, no. I, I had no idea that this is what was being done. And so some people, but, actors. But what do you do? I have done both. I have done both by outlines and uh, and kind of you know totally know my first line, totally know my last line. If you have the opportunity to tell it enough times, uh -huh. it's kind of like a joke, where yes. ultimately a joke that you've been telling for ten years, even just like a regular joke, not something you do as part of your stand-up act, it's exactly the same language. I can't write out it verbatim. If I do, it loses its um, joy for it's me. Oomph. Yes. So I will have exactly you said the first, last, and then I'll have points in between. I'll have like a word to remind me. Now what stinks is that I may step on my own joke because I decided not to write it out. And then, you know, in the middle of the story, I'll get sidetracked or something like that and then not deliver it the best way possible. But what I love is I'm really in the moment each time I tell the story. Well, that's the challenge. The challenge is how do you bring total predictable craft, the, yes. you know, the, the predictability yes. of you know, ultimate perfect verbal expression with the enthusiasm of I'm here right now and we're just talking.
Yes. And that's a real challenge. So for me, and when I'm I did my show, in. when I did my show, Life in a Marital Institution, every word of that was worked out. And it was so overwhelmingly draining and taxing at the end of that experience because, you know, I loved it. I was like, I want the perfect way to express it. You can feel it, you can see it, and you seek it. Now, that took years to find it. And at how the end of that, I was like, I got to try a different method for my next show. Oh, is that right? Okay, yes. so and Asylum and Monthly Nut, did they come after? Yes, that's exactly it. And I was listening as I was going on, you know, long story short, I, I liken a lot of my experiences or I use as my kind of uh, runes pop music and uh, especially the Beatles versus the Rolling Stones, who arrived at the same place, top of the pop heap, through different paths. The Beatles, multiple takes, every friggin' note is worked out. Versus the Stones, which is vibe. We're pros, you know, these are the words, but it's a vibe. You know, it's not worked out to the same degree of uh, symphonic precision. So those are two different ways of approaching pop, and I've tried to approach storytelling similarly with you know, experimenting with both methods. One being really constricted, tight, and what I view like this is exactly what I want to say versus here's a vibe that I'm trying to get which, to you. Which, which um, derives more pleasure for you? Um, I, the, the Rolling Stones approach is a <laughs> hell of a lot easier and more fun. The, uh, the Beatles approach is uh, you're just so proud ultimately because it's just exactly, you know, it's, it's, you're able to get what's inside of you and make it visible in a perfect way. Let's talk first about life in a marital institution because it has had many lives. <laughs> yes. Lots of lemonade from those lemons. <laughs> That's exactly right. So I'm going to guess you started with the marriage. That was the first step to creating this uh, critically acclaimed uh, award-winning one-man show and now book and also now developing into a film. Or developing it into, yes, the yeah. film and TV rights are uh, with Meredith Vieira production, okay. so we're developing it on multiple tracks. <laughs> Did start out as stories. A friend of mine said, who I knew in this corporate communications world, said, you got to write about you know, what makes you angry and or what you don't understand. Well, both of those things were true in the case of my marriage, and I did start writing about it. And When did you start uh, resenting your marriage? Um, uh, <laughs> uh, just to, to those of you at home, it's that lock-jawed <laughs> thing that people do sometimes when they feel they've opened up an uncomfortable room in the house. Uh, it wasn't that I re- kind of resented it. Or, it just... You know, uh, we met in college. Yes, uh, and you were head over heels for her along with everyone else was head over heels Yes, for and I saw that Jane. there were predators and that I was going to have to raise the bar in order to keep them away, you know, raise my standards, get better grades, be more present, etc. And, you know, we got together. Now, it was high conflict from the beginning by the same token, and I thought that would go away. I thought this is just a phase. And what do you know when you're that age? And uh, this is what I get back to with trusting your emotional life. And I really did not trust my emotional life. I trusted, I just needed her, I wanted her, and got her, and bonded. And one of the ways we bonded was in opposition to my family. Like, do you see what I see? Are they as you know, messed up as I think they are? Absolutely, she'd say. And then over time, I would go to them, and I'd say, do you think that what we have is as messed up? Absolutely. So I would be going back and forth between these two poles, and we got tighter and tighter, my wife and I. And she sounded, you know, speaking all these languages, she's well-traveled, she's opinionated, she didn't need you when you first yeah, started Yeah, yeah, she's like totally self-possessed, <laughs> scholarship, uh, you know, Ivy yes. League, uh, and you'd go to France with her, she'd get off a plane, and she'd read the, the bus schedule in French, and yes. you know, take a Eurail to Germany, and she'd meet, read the train schedule in German, and on and on, and it wasn't like, a feather in her cap. It's just that's what you do when you're over there. Yes, that's that was a genuine, a genuine thirst for knowledge. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And Absolutely. it's like this is what when you grow up in that world, you speak multiple languages. Yeah. I saw a guy in a bar, a bartender on in Amsterdam. Parler en français, si tu veux. Uh, <laughs> je vais parler un petit, uh, petit peu de français. Uh, oui, uh, and a little bit more than that. <laughs> I speak night French, but it's the day, so I won't go into that. Okay. Uh, but you, you marry this woman who you're madly in love with, and she becomes increasingly different from me. And actually, I kind of go back to one of our first meetings, you know, two or three weeks into the relationship, and she said, you know, you will never bore me. And I was really, I'm, I'm an undergraduate when she says this, and I, I, I was really offended at the time. And she said, no, 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 that is the highest compliment that I can give you, because I know I'm really going to change uh, as we stay together. So and I think that you will too. 
So she had this sort of long-range vision that, you know, yes. And that was an amazing, fascinating thing to me because she was dialed into something I wasn't. And, you know, I would wake up in the seminary where she was and her arm would be moving like a, like a conductor, like it had a baton in it. And she was dreaming. And I would just look at her and then she, for a while. And then she would wake up and I'd say, what were you doing? And she'd say, I was conducting Brahms in my dream. Oh, wow. Uh, and then we would go on to discuss the astral realm where people go after they die to work on the talents that weren't fully manifest when they were here on earth. There's a difference between Brahms and Mozart. Mozart is another level up. How do you get to be Mozart when you're Brahms? Well, you conduct on the astral realm <laughs> and you come back down and you incarnate as an even more awesome musician the next time around. And Maybe this, your prince. This is when she's a graduate student. At seminary. Yeah. Yes, and so it was, she was dialed into a, a world that I'd never heard of and found very, very interesting and uh, nourishing. You know, it was very, very nourishing. Absolutely. And, and, you know, it's like how you can find meaning without conventional definitions of success. Real deep meaning. So that to me was something worth knowing about. And I hitched my wagon to her and she hitched hers to me. Why do you think she fell in love with you? Uh, yeah, my mom asked me that at the time. <laughs> she fell in love with me, I think, because Except it was... I don't mean it in a negative way. Yeah, uh, although she does. It's, it's, uh, <laughs> I meant it in a I want to use that effing again, but in a different uh, sentence. Right. Uh, I was very uh, passionate and... Uh, fun. And fun. Handsome. You know, and uh, yeah, all those good, all those yeah. conventional things. And uh, she liked, and, and I kind of, you know, dealt with the world in a way she didn't. You know, I was more, I was able to kind of deal with conventional life. You know, for example, making a living and... Uh, but that's huge for, for a writer, uh, to be the one who's making a living. Yes, <laughs> especially since her mom warned her at the time, he's a poet with his head in the clouds. I hope you have a plan for making money for the two of you, because yes. he's not going to be yes. it. And I realized, well, I was going to have to be it. So that's part of what our roles really shifted. She was a scholarship student and I was an F up and we got together and I realized, you know, I need to be able to succeed in this realm and she relaxed in that realm and life went on and ultimately when we had kids, that's when her, you know, careerist, workaholic, whatever you want to call it, re-engaged in a big way. And because you fueled it into the kids in what's called like helicopter parenting now. In, in the most profound way. Like not a, did not She'd spend be like a the night Air Force away one. from the kids for like eight and a half years. Like they did not go on a sleepover. The, the children were not allowed out of the house. Uh, for something like eight, eight and a half years. No trips to in-laws. I mean, we would go to in-laws and all the rest, that kind of thing. But no, a lot of people you see in, in conventional marriages or whatever, they'll, maybe they'll go, they'll take three days in the Bahamas or three days in New Jersey and uh, yes. just to kind of rekindle the marriage or whatever. Like, we were not taking three days and, away and from the kids. And breastfed till what age, your kids? Um, the, well, it depends on who you ask because I started to block these memories out. But I can definitely commit to a visceral memory of uh, five years old for each of them and, and probably six. Can I just ask you a question? Why couldn't you be like, I don't think this is good for the kids or for me? Oh, I was. I was both of those things. And yeah, that the. But not enough to leave. You wanted to stay. Well, yes. And ultimately, no. Uh, ultimately, I did leave. And, yeah. you know, but initially, you know, I felt like, like I could not make a stand for that issue in front of the kids without freaking them out. Because the kids are like, it you would know, cause more damage than good. But so but I have by, to work it through her. Yes. And it's like, listen, this is not cool. And I also, you know, one of the points that I made. This is a piece that I did in the Times, which met with very, very interesting results. I don't know whether you well, read you, this piece. I think I did. It's called um, uh, "Is Latching on a Turnoff." Yeah. Is this the know? one where you got attacked on Jezebel? Yes. And this is about uh, chemical. Somebody suggested chemically castrating me. That's yeah. right. Have you tried getting chemically castrated? I I don't know where to do it. It's not available <laughs> at retail. You mean they told you to go get chemically castrated and they didn't even give you an address, an address or, or, or know, a website or people anything? People have to work. I'm, trolls on the internet need to really work and step up their game. Autochemicalcastration.com. <laughs> I looked up a lot of things, but I didn't have the time. 
tell us about your article, which was meant to be provocative, I think. It, it actually was. I it started with this operating theory. And the operating theory was I, uh, life in a marital institution had worked largely through being kind of affable and, and to the degree that I was able to marshal it, charming, you know, friendly. Like, hi, I'm a friendly guy who's been through this crazy stuff. Let me take you on this adventure. That's how life in a marital institution And mischievous. Works. Yeah, and, I'm, and not politically correct by the no. same token, but because you see me... You, you realize I'm not, you know, a crank or whatever. No, no, now, I would say old school. There you go, exactly, <laughs> only young. <laughs> An old school wasp, is that fair? Uh, now, now you go to, but the operating theory with the Times piece was, I have this feeling, now and there's a reason I was believing this, I have this feeling that, that the left, and I, which I consider myself more or less a part of, although that may not be true, but that the left is just as intolerant as the right. Now, I come from a family of kind of radical right-wing people. Excuse me. It's my organic bread and locally exactly. <laughs> harvested bread. That's exactly it. I, I know a woman and who scraped oil. the spelt pumpkin crust away from the organic dairy-free pumpkin filling, and she wouldn't let her kid eat the spelt crust because it was white spelt, not whole spelt. That kind of Caucasian doc spelt. doctrine. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, and we spelt. want uh, affirmative action spelt. And there was none of that to be had. So... It was crazy. So in, in any event, my, my operating theory with the piece in the Times was, I'm going to explore this idea to see whether these people are, whether I can siphon out or filter out a group of people who are just like radically intolerant, but on the left. It turns out there's a whole lot of them, about three or 4,000 of them, some of whom wanted me to be chemically castrated. And the basic thesis was, uh, when you breastfeed a kid, and you go to two, three, four, five years old, it's no longer your breast. It's ours. That's not, you know, mom or, it's not mommeries. They're mammaries. And we need to work this out as a couple. Uh, and because, like, it's a really, really unappealing thing to see again and again and again and again. A four, five, six-year-old kid with teeth and chores and baseball uniforms on. All of nursing. that I get as a as a human being. I get all of it. What feels sometimes undignified is then I think about like why didn't that person just talk to the other person? Why couldn't they have a rational conversation? And of course, the subject isn't rational to begin with, and that's why you weren't able to have a conversation about it. Well, we it. did. We we did. But her position and the, the position of a lot of people, and I, it was kind of a, a an over the top piece, and that's the reason that I well, wrote and it. Then, but no, no, and that brings up the other issue is that when when one is a writer or a storyteller. You know, you are writing these pieces that are a bit over the top. I do too. I mean, we all do. It's like this is this is my truth, and somehow I have to separate that. I mean, when I read your piece, I think they're very funny, and so I don't take issue. I don't treat it with the same. I'm not looking for the facts and logic the way that I would in a, a um, reported article by the the New York Times. I'm reading your essay as an essay that's meant to be provocative and mischievous. However. You know, how do you separate the two? You have this, this, the writer, James, or the storyteller, James, and then you have James who's supposed to be married and be... Uh, and be respectful of my wife. And be respectful wife of another and, human being, and, God forbid. Yeah. yeah. Well, the, here's the ethics. The ethics are that I don't tell anybody else's secrets. I tell my own. And, there's, and they're mine to tell. So, if you're breastfeeding your kid till five or six years old in public, that's public. She was, you know, my wife was totally open about that and totally cool with it. There's no stigma attached to it from her perspective. Has she ever been upset that you wrote, wrote about her or write about her so candidly? Yeah, she, yeah, she is uh, upset. Now, she doesn't read what I write uh, for the most part. She, read, she hears from other people. It's, she's kind of like my own personal Jerry Falwell who's hearing from others what The Last Temptation of Christ was about and hammering me. <laughs> I'm her personal Mel Gibson. And it didn't uh, hurt your marriage? Uh, well, at that time we were uh, separated. Yeah. When I wrote that. Uh, no, it didn't, but to answer that question. Yeah, this is the, where we started. The, the writing we'll of it did not back. hurt my marriage because she was in a completely separate world that did not intersect. No television, no radio, no internet service, upstate, in the, you know, in the leftist biosphere uh, with no connection between that world and this world. It should just be called leftist, leftistan. That's good. Leftistan. I like that. Or like Stan, it. it's like Vietnam or Vietnam. But I, yeah. I, you know, yeah, you'd but, have but, to have some type of accent on the, you, you couldn't just have no accent. Yeah, yeah, maybe that, even that a physical a, one. So, but that was her world. So, so she did not run into, she did not have to reckon with this I know, but between world. the two of you, I mean, it's sort of this undignified thing of talking about this person. 
behind their well, back. Well, but I, but again, I wasn't saying anything that I had that she had not been open about. I mean, she was totally cool and actually proud of yes. this. And I and one of the reasons, that, you know, hey, I believe that this is what's right to do. Number one and number two, you go on La Leche League. Dot com, dot org, whatever it is, and which I did, because I'm trying to find you know Who information. Who doesn't support La Leche? Yeah, I mean, or or go into the sub menus, you know, La Leche League backslash psychotically desperate husbands backslash quick facts, right? <laughs> Nothing there in that sub menu. And what I was looking for is when is it right for the husband to tell the mother that it's wrong to keep breastfeeding, right? Never. The answer is never. That the, the real answer, their real answer is, as long as the mom and the kid want to keep doing it, it's cool. But what's the real answer for you? The real answer for me was, I can't, uh, you know, as I was saying at night, I said, let's do, the, let's do the singles ad. I had been listening to Rupert Holmes, I think was his name, the Pina Colada song, where the couples write singles ads. You know that song? No. And, oh, it's a classic, genre classic in the 70s. If you like Pina Coladas and getting caught. Oh, yes. Right? Okay. So the real, the story there is that he writes a singles ad, she writes a singles ad, and they meet each other in a bar and fall in love again not knowing that both of them have written singles ads, that they really do want each other. And they didn't know that. And they're, you know, so they find they fall in love again. So I'm saying to my wife, all right, let's do the singles ad uh, for you. Uh, you know, single white mother with two kids uh, looking for, you know, single white uh, male, you know, must be willing to share a bed with those two kids. And, uh, and breasts, too, because, yes, they're in the first grade, but they're still breastfeeding. Uh, and I, this was kind of tongue-in-cheek. And she said... Well, a lot of guys would think that's hot. And I said, I'm not one of them. <laughs> <laughs> and most importantly, I'm your husband. Uh, so, and it's just not cool with me. So that was the, the position that I took with her. And I didn't feel like there was anything uh, disrespectful to say that. Uh, no, and, it's and honest. I, and no, I, no, no, it's I, just I... like, this is her choice. And, I'm, and I respect the fact that people have a right to make their own choices. The point of the article, the Times article, and this is kind of the underlying theme in my, in my piece to a certain degree, is that uh, relationships can, can work on any terms. You know, there are people in this cult, that cult, you know, things that we don't call a cult, but they agree. You know, they agree on the underlying principles. That's the issue. And but you still have to agree whether you're together now or not, but you have your kids together. I mean, there is also the issue of whether you thought it was good for the children. Yes. Well, that's that. This is an interesting point. When I started writing my book, I thought, you know, it became clear to me that my kids, even though they were being raised in a leftist biosphere and that illiteracy was a was a bonus, uh, that there was that one day they were going to learn how to read, right. <laughs> and they were going to read this book. Uh, so I was very, very careful in what I revealed and what I didn't reveal. Did you also feel like you were crafting your rebuttal in case they ever came and blamed you and said, Dad, why, why didn't you do X, Y, and Z when we were young? And you're like, well, here's why. It was your, it was your uh, mother's fault. Yeah. No, it's <laughs> funny. No, I never approached it from that point of view because my, my approach to storytelling in general and autobiographical storytelling, you know, my yes. autobiographical storytelling, is I'm just using my life as raw material to make a larger point. Yes. It just happens to have happened to me. It doesn't really matter that it's me. I just know this world. I feel this way as a writer, and so I'm so thrilled to talk to you about this because it's such an uncomfortable and difficult part of the process where you want to be able to write about these things because they're so good. I hate that I have to change the name of my sister-in-law and brother because they're the perfect names for the characters. For the characters. <laughs> you know, it's really hard to walk away from the truth, which is so over the top, <laughs> to water it down. You know, to be able to accommodate your writing life with your personal life. And what a lot of people in your personal life don't realize is that you're not trying to settle scores, you're not trying no. to humiliate. It doesn't really matter that it's your life or their life. You're just using it mercilessly that, in some ways as material. David said, Sedaris did a great story on this. I don't know whether you've read it, but where he apologizes to the parrot. Yes, uh, yes. You know, at the end of the night. That said, I do think it's fair for them to have feelings about all of these Absolutely. things. Absolutely. And they can write their own. I have yet to hear from my mom, sister, brother, or any other family member who was a character, is a character in my story, in my book, from St. Martin's, about the book. Now, they did see the show. My mom and my and sister did see the show. And what were their And this is the live show that they saw. Yes, the live which show. Which was at my, Edinburgh and, and now... Um, and Off-Broadway, yeah. and then it toured. And my mom's response was, I know who I am. 
And uh, <laughs> my sister's response was, I can't believe you didn't have more stories in there about me. I love, I love that. That uh, makes me so happy. So she was totally cool with it. But I feel like we're lucky that our siblings aren't writers and, and artists because I always think about that with the families where they're all writers. You know, like what happens there with, you know, there are certain writers where there's, uh, you know, or Erica Young and her, her, her Oh, her Jong. daughter, yeah, Young, Jong, yeah, the zipless <laughs> uh, F. I just made her a new yeah, <laughs> ethnic the, the background. The zipless F asterisk. <laughs> yes. Molly Young Fast. Yes, That's yes. It. Or maybe yeah. it's Jong, I don't know. I think um, it's Jong. She's a Facebook friend. She's very nice. I did a show with her. Very and, nice. And with her mom. Yes, and both of them are phenomenally talented nice. writers. But I do feel lucky in some ways that, that my siblings haven't chosen to... Uh, it's a, no, it's a very funny thing that you say that because I, I, uh, there's more to it than that. I got an email three or four months ago, subject line. I think my father is your brother. Oh, wow. Right, you open up your email box in the morning. That's the subject line. So 10 emails later, you know, yes, absolutely, your dad is my brother. And we do a little background checking. Yeah, my dad was over, oh, stationed wow. at this base in France, you know, on and on and on. Yeah, Eisenhower's pilot, check, 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 check. And then I forward this email to my known brother and sister with the subject line, you know, and the whole email train contained in the, in the body of the email, you know, meet your new brother. And the next thing I know, that has been forwarded to my niece, and my niece has made it a Facebook event. Oh my God. <laughs> and it has nothing to do with me. And I'm like, hey, this is my turf, uh, you know, the, the, the freak show. And that's the unspoken Right. A contract that I think I have with everybody is that they're all, you know, living freaky lives and I get to report on them. Well, no. You know, her position, my niece's position is, uh, she's not going to write about it necessarily, but she's not asking for permission to make a Facebook event out of it and, you know, to bring this guide and, the, you know, so I like say, okay, I'll see that making it a Facebook event and raise you with This American Life story. So I call This American Life and who has a like freaky stuff that's happening to you December 1st to December 8th. That's the theme of the show. And say, so I got a freaky thing that's happening to me on December 1st. I'm meeting my brother for the first time. Right. And uh, they said, Awesome. Totally weird. We'll messenger over a deck. <laughs> <laughs> so they messenger over a deck, and I text this guy who I've never met, who's coming in on the plane from Oslo, and say, uh, so I'm going to look a little weird when I get you. I'm going to have a big, giant, fuzzy microphone in my hand and earphones. Is that cool? And he's like, oh, yeah, this is my American adventure. He's recorded this whole thing, starting with getting up that morning. This is the adventure and he, of his he life. was game to be on This American Life, too. And by the way, it's a wonderful story. Yeah. Oh, he's totally cool about it. He was completely cool, photographed the whole thing, getting on the airplane. You know, he's going to go meet the family. This guy is 51 or 52 years old at this time and suddenly discovering that he has a family and a father, most importantly, who he's never known, yes. never met, and he's going to come meet them all. So this is his story. It's my niece's story. And it's my story. So it's and I mean, it's all of us on Facebook. It's Mark Zuckerberg's story, too. It's uh, ultimately <laughs> he owns the copyright. But, you know, that's what it means. To <laughs> it's Zuckerberg's world. We just, uh, you know, friend in it. Now, you're uh, one of the few people who can actually make a living off their own stories. And part of that is having these movie and TV deals. And I wanted to find out how did you hook up with Meredith Vieira? I encountered her, uh, a woman named Amy Rapp, who runs her production company, who's an awesome film uh, production executive. Yes. She uh, found out about my show and emailed me, and we met for uh, pizza the next day. Oh, at, nice. Uh, well, I had a pizza. You know, uh, women are about pizza. I don't know what women eat, but they don't eat pizza usually. But she like, had something. You're like Addison. <laughs> I know. I'm like, I'm madder then, <laughs> even before then. But they really don't eat pizza. Although I will say, you're absolutely women right. Women don't eat pizza. I don't know. I, it's the, the more I yeah, know. Yeah, we're, we're all a size two. I know absolutely nothing. <laughs> now, I went. I went. At one point, I realized, James, you know absolutely nothing. So I went around my neighborhood, having acknowledged that. This is in like the depths of my marriage darkness. I was like, I really know nothing. I need to go out and find out about people because I've been in this box for so I long. And I went to a bar and ordered a margarita. And I overheard two women talking about emailing each other. And I said, Ex excuse me, were you just talking about emailing each other? And they said, yeah. And I said, I didn't think women emailed each other. And, Stop it. And they said... Why would you think that? And I said, well, you know, because my wife said that, like, you know, I've been married for 20 years and that, like, you know, email is like a guy thing and women don't do that. And the bartender said, 
you poor bastard. <laughs> and he gave How me a free drink. Why your wife like purport these like sexist stereotypes? Because to each other she's at home in this traditional role, and I'm a freelance writer with no office community. Zero. But that doesn't mean you don't step outside your door. But you think of how much you learn from work and how people behave. You go out to dinner and you see women eating pizza and you're like, oh, women eat pizza. And you know, I, on the other hand, am in a friggin' bunker you know, for decades. In New York. In New York. And I'm traveling on business and there are those yeah, women who email me. There. there are those women who email <laughs> me. But it's like, maybe that's just, they do that just because they have to, not because they want to. Is this uh, a character or is this real? Oh, this is real. <laughs> this is real. Because, you know, I'm a monomaniac, highly focused on a couple of things. And one of the things I was focused on was my marriage. Really needed it, wanted it to work. I need you to focus on reality in the next in the next phase. Yeah. No, I am the, the blinders <laughs> fell off and I saw I looked around me and like there's a woman eating pepperoni pizza yeah. a slice and there's somebody emailing me on a PDA uh, it, was, it, it was I had a, a psychiatrist who was a, a woman who had a Blackberry or a Palm Pilot I guess it was and I was shocked by the was, Palm Pilot? Yes. I agree. I, I'm assuming this was in the, the This was about 90s. 10 years ago. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this was about 10, 12 years ago. But I, it was okay. really shocking, actually, to see that. So see anyway, that pilot. was then. This is now. Oh, I wait. Have, you mean to see a woman with a Palm Pilot? Yes. I thought yeah. you meant to see a Palm Pilot. Well, no, no, no. No, it was a woman Jeez, with I feel like you were, like, from outer space. Like, <laughs> well, the Upper West Side. <laughs> that makes even less Corporate sense married large penis gay. <laughs> but corporate large penis. Okay, I would understand more if you were gay and never interacted <laughs> with women. I, can't, I just can't get over this. It's making my head. Explode. Well, here's the thing. Okay, and in all seriousness, when you have an attachment to something that's profoundly important, to as you, in sexism, yes. Uh, <laughs> well, a woman, let's say, or a man, <laughs> and and information potentially can come into you that will challenge that attachment. Yeah. How do you reconcile it? And one of the ways that you reconcile, like for example, you know, you hear these stories about criminals all the time and, and they go to their partners, usually are women, you know, who like didn't know their husbands were criminals. And they're like, didn't you know he was a, a this or a that? And they're like, no, he speaks, you know, he speaks Russian and I didn't speak Russian or I didn't know what yeah, was they, going on. Yeah, they hold on to the delusion. That's yes. right. They hold, because you, the emotional attachment is so intense that cognitive information can't stand a chance. It can't get into your heart. And it so you've held on to the delusion. Tightly. <laughs> <laughs> Through 14 marriage counselors, multiple moves, yeah. kids, and, and ultimately, you know, we came around, you know, I came around to a more balanced view of people, and she came around to a more balanced view. We are not together, but we are, she does, going back to your initial comment, uh, I think you said something about reincarnation, she believes in that. And oh, no, I said resentment, but yes. but she, So she does believe in reincarnation and thinks you might get together in a future life? She believes if we don't work it out in this life, we'll definitely get together in the next That's life. That's so beautiful. So it's kind of like you know Gandhi who'd said to the Muslims and the Hindus, they were masked one day in 1951 or whatever. It's like you need to work it out because this is my karma to help you work it out, and I do not want to be reincarnated. Do you want to work it out? Do you want to come back together with her? I want to. I love her, and I do want to achieve a, a working relationship with her absolutely yeah i mean she's you know she's the mother of my kids she's a fascinating you know interesting uh woman who i've you know it's been really really difficult to figure out the common ground like what's the venn diagram overlap mm -hmm. and and one of the obvious venn diagrams venn diagram overlaps is we're family you know we got kids together we've been through decades and you've been through a book and now a television and tv series almost. we've been through a lot <laughs> and that's now you part have of a reality show series that could be the next spinoff uh yeah or or i thought about doing like the equivalent of a gordon liddy timothy leary tour where it's a he said she said you could certainly do that sort of thing where you, you know it's, it's you know different perspectives on the same issue i've done this as Annabelle a storyteller with did well, that with her husband um khan that they did this storytelling thing, uh, you say tomato, I say tomato. Oh, I But really it's, that you say tomato, I were say. Were they together or apart when they did that? <laughs> <laughs> you say tomato, I say F you? Yeah. yeah. Um, they did a tour with their book about that. Were they married or divorced? Married. Married. Yeah. 
Uh, but it, divorce would be very interesting. That would be fascinating. You know, when you hear, I, I, do, I better get a nice dinner from your Bravo reality show. That's I, co- I do storytelling dinners sometimes for you know, it's like a fancy weird party entertainment. No, no, I meant I get it because you're gonna get a reality show now. Show, where, yes, you if you're listening your, out there. Your, so, well, this is actually viable. So I have been on the coaching side of this in a story. You know, I've done venture capitalist dinners. They'll invite me over to be the party entertainment, and there's two people at the table. And How much do you get paid for that? Uh, well, more than we're making right now. <laughs> well, so, like, uh, so like seven digits, six digits? It's, well, it depends on how many zeros after the decimal point you okay. include, but we'll talk about this offline. But okay. it's, a, it's a very interesting gig. Because speech writing for people, I did an article, is so lucrative. I mean, it's um, you can make thousands and, and uh, tens of thousands of dollars doing speeches for people. You can, I lived in a building with Keanu Reeves and Jerry Seinfeld as a speechwriter. I mean, that's amazing. You can, you can live well. And not just in the parking garage for Seinfeld. You I know. live, that no. That was a separate building. Actually, his car, <laughs> I, I actually would look on that, his parking garage with envy because I realized at a certain point, and this is actually a very hard thing to accept, that his cars live at a higher standard than I do. Oh, no, no. His cars definitely live a higher standard than I I mean, do. they live in an incredible standard. <laughs> and they've got four minders in there. Right, and, they have four housekeepers. And friggin' walnut <laughs> wainscoting. It's incredible. The drain. On his in his washing bay is about nineteen thousand dollars. It's brushed titanium. It's incredible. I can't stop laughing. I used to look at him when he walked through the lobby and say, "Just one tenth of one percent, Jerry. That's all I want." <laughs> no, did they end up ever being helpful to you? Did they ever come see the show or anything like that? No, I moved out before that. You know, I I had I will if you're out there, Jerry. He has no idea. I'd actually done a spec script for Seinfeld, and I had it in my briefcase as I was going into the elevator with him. And he lived on the 15th floor, and I lived on the second floor, I think, at the time. So there was no reason for me to go up 15 floors. But I did, because I was almost going to pull it out. It was going to whip it out and show it to him. And then what happened? I was thinking about Sharon Stone in the last scene of Basic Instinct, where she has her hand on the ice pick, and is about to drill it into Michael Douglas. And I thought, you know, I really need to just do this and make it happen. But my, and this goes to the old school wasp part of me, I guess, as I felt like the home was sacrosanct, that I was going to have to assault him in a different way, not in the elevator. And well, I now that you have these TV deal and, and film deal, maybe you can assault him. Yeah. Or well, maybe take out the assault part. It's, yeah, that, that part of it was disturbing <laughs> as well. It does become, it's very hard to motivate yourself when you think you're going to hurt someone. I needed to like recast it as doing him a favor. But I could, you know, the truth of the matter is, when I sort of decoded it, I had 14 floors to decode what I was actually doing. And I thought, this could ruin me. You know, he could, it's, who knows whether he holds a grudge. And uh, it better be incredible. I like that that's the scene you remember from Basic Instinct. Yes. I just remember that she wasn't wearing any underwear and uncrossed and crossed her legs. So you could try that approach and see if that helps. Yeah, but. Especially uh, since you said earlier. Yeah, what the people in the comedy class thought about me. But I, uh, of course, went to a Pilates uh, personal trainer and I don't see myself that way anymore. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So up next is Monthly Nut and Asylum. I feel like I have to have you back on the podcast because we didn't really get a chance to hear about them. I'd love to come back and tell you about it. Monthly Nut is about loving your lifestyle and hating your life. Okay. And it's set in like what the things that you have to do that you don't like to get stuff that you love. And it's set in that Central Park West building on the night that it all hits the fan for a whole lot of people. The window opens, a guy goes out 10 floors, another guy has kidnapped his daughter because he's cracking under the pressure of being Mr. Mom with his Emmy award-winning wife, and I am trying to stay on deadline in this storage unit writing motivational speeches for a pharmaceutical executive who's launching a new antipsychotic. I mean, I can't wait. How do people see that? Darkly funny. Oh, you mean how, how yeah. are they going to actually yes. see that yes. piece? Well, I developed it at the uh, Barrow Group uh, a little while ago, and I'm going to pull it back in New York. It's okay. going to be, so if you go to my site, James Brawley, B-R-A-L-Y.com, you'll uh, find events and uh, so forth. So or you can excited. go to my Facebook page or Twitter feed. And then what about Asylum? Asylum is an autobiographical story about trying to get, stop smoking pot when I was a teenager and the only uh, means that was available to me at that time was checking myself into a nut house. And there was no such thing as a rehab. And it was at that point that I realized, wow, the people I just left may be crazier than these people. What happens when you meet you know, technically crazy people who are more sane than the people at home? 
fascinating. And your and your kids um, are are very well fed. I'm, I imagine my kids live kind of solid, <laughs> uh, stable, middle class lives. I'm leaving right after uh, we finish talking. Yeah. And I'm getting in my car and driving uh, upstate to begin my alternate parenting week. Um, they're 14, 11 years old. Uh, they are awesome. So every other week you're with them. Every other week I'm with them. Okay, upstate. Yeah. Upstate New York. Okay. I live a bifurcated life. Uh, it's very, very challenging for all the obvious reasons. Yeah. You know, to straddle these two worlds. Yeah. Uh, as I was talking to my son today, he's like, "Why are you going to be late? Because ordinarily I would be there at 3:30." Oh, I'm so sorry. And, okay. Uh, and I said, "Because this okay, is what yeah. it takes, dude." <laughs> and uh, he understood. Well, I'm going to let you go see him. I, I cannot articulate how insanely addictive your book is. <laughs> it was um, impossible to do anything else but read it. It was such a pleasure. And if people get a chance to see you live, they really should. They should go to your website to check you out. Um, and you can also go to The Moth and, 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 or This American Life or The New York Times. Um, but please, please, please know that we would love, we meaning me, I would love to have you back on the show again. Oh, well, thank you. It's a great honor to be here and uh, to have a chance to talk with you, truly. Total pleasure. That's it for this episode of Employee of the Month show. I want to thank Joel and Danielle and everyone who has worked so tirelessly on putting Employee of the Month show together. And to all of you listening, you can go to employeeofthemonthshow.com. If you want to give and support the podcast, please do. If you want to nominate someone, you can always go there as long as they are not a parking ticket officer, dictator, or anything else that seems unseemly. Otherwise, I'm excited to be with you in the next episodes. We've got a lot more really fun interviews. I'm just saying. Am, am I bragging or is it just honesty? It's honesty. 